0: Welcome to Ed Talks, an audio podcast presented by Achieve Minneapolis and the Citizens League in partnership with young education professionals Twin Cities and Pollen. Ed Talks is a lively series of community conversations about public education and related issues that impact our young people. Each Ed Talks features two compelling short presentations by cutting-edge educators, youth advocates, students, artists, or community leaders. EdTalks is supported by generous grants from the Bush Foundation and the Vern C. Johnson Family Foundation. This EdTalks focuses on honoring the teacher and learner in all of us. Our speakers include Beverly Kotman, a retired Minneapolis teacher and folktale storyteller, and Lindsey Walls, founder and executive director of Courageous Hearts. This event was recorded before a live audience at Honey in Minneapolis on November 3, 2014.
1: The Village Bakery was small, but known far and wide as the best in the area. People came from everywhere to buy bread. There were some who were not, a, not so fortunate and could not pay. One such person was an old woman who stood outside the bakery door with her tin cup containing a few coins that tinkled and rattled around. She never had enough to buy bread, so she was content to just stand and smell the bread. Although the baker was a prosperous man, the sight of the old woman annoyed him, and he often told her, move on, get out of the way. You may not stand here. You're blocking the door of my bakery. You're blocking my paying customers, but the old woman, just rattled her coins and replied, I have only a few coins and I don't have enough to buy and all I really need to do is to stand here and smell the bread. Well, the prosperous baker said, all right, I'm going to take you before the village council and that he did and the village council agreed that she needed to pay for the smell of the bread now the old woman appealed to the chief of the village and the chief said, Well, perhaps I better hear both sides. The baker said, This woman stands in front of my door, rattling her coin, smelling the bread, and she ought to pay. And the old woman said, But I don't have very much money, and I am perfectly satisfied to just smell the bread. Well, the village chief thought on that for a while and then pronounced his judgment. Since the baker has heard the sound of the woman's coins, he has been paid for the smell of her bread. <laughs> now, this old folk tale has many, many versions And uh, tales similar to it are told in cultures all over the world. No matter how it's told or who the characters are, the message, the moral, the lesson is the same. An imaginative mind can overcome many obstacles. Storytelling is a way to stimulate, wake up, prod, grow, develop an imaginative mind. With storytelling, a person or group can be educated, entertained, and empowered to find and claim their place in the world. Look at challenges, concerns, problems from different perspectives, and then develop creative solutions. Help and support others to realize their own potential, and to learn, use, and celebrate the lessons of culture and heritage. Storytelling is an oral tradition embedded in every human culture. Before there was any technology, there was the human voice. Everything that needed to be learned or mastered was passed on orally. All the history, legacies, myths, legends handed down through generations were related in stories which made the lessons memorable and lasting. As a performing storyteller, I'm called Auntie Beverly, and I usually tell African and African-American folk tales, stories, and fables to all generations of audiences in different, different settings. I aspire to be a teller of universal truths to provide emotional depth by the way I tell, and to bring wisdom of the ages to these troubled times. I truly believe there is a story for almost every situation. And if I look long and hard enough, I will find it, learn it, tell it. So let's get down to some basics. First, what is a story? In the simplest form, a story is the relating of an event or events which may be true or real, or may be fictitious, told in a sequence of beginning, middle, and end, but not always in that order. There are characters, a plot, a setting, maybe some conflict, a resolution, a moral, a point, a lesson. It can be written down and read, in which case the reader is limited to the words on the page, but still must bring their own imaginative mind to it, or. It may be related orally by a storyteller who uses vocal dynamics, facial expressions, gestures and movements, instruments or props, and maybe an enriched vocabulary to provide that emotional depth I mentioned earlier, to make the story memorable. Storytelling incorporates rhythm and rhyme, repetition, call and response, movement or gestures, and interactions which may involve audience conversation and participation. I will share with you some ways storytelling can be used to educate, entertain, empower, with excerpts from one of my favorite stories. We'll start with education. This topic With this topic, I like to focus on the gaining of new knowledge, finding a deeper understanding of what is already known, and developing literacy, social, and emotional skills. There isn't, that isn't everything, but it is a start. I'll begin with the story called Salif the Tailor. If you were to travel east from the Twin Cities, by car, bus, train, or plane to New York, and then take a ship or a plane and continue east a little and then south across the Atlantic Ocean, you would bump into the western part of the continent of Africa, Dakar, Senegal. Will you say Dakar, Senegal? Dakar, Senegal. In Dakar, Senegal is a large market. It's bigger than the Mall of America. It's spread out over blocks and blocks as far as the eye can see. The buildings are not very tall, and the streets are narrow and crooked. This is the world-famous Sandaga Market. Will you say Sandaga Market? Sandaga Market. You can buy any and everything there, from an abacus to a zither. Say you're looking to buy some new clothes, then you would follow one of the narrow and crooked streets until you came to a small tailor shop with a sign that said, Salif the Tailor. Now let's stop here for a minute. I hope you noticed the embedded geography lesson, which may be a review for some, or an introduction of new information for others. Nowadays, when I tell this story in schools, there is almost always someone from the continent of Africa, and we get to talk about where they have come from and where their home country is in relation to Senegal. There's also opportunity to compare and contrast the concepts of market versus shopping mall. But let's get on with the story. <laughs> so, Salif is the most famous and sought out tailor in the Sandiga market, so, people who want things made bring him fabric. For instance, a gentleman wanted a suit made, and the fabric that he brought in was brown as the African soil. Let me see you do that and say that too. Here we go. Brown as the African soil. (laughs) And Salif made him that outfit, but he took a little piece of that brown fabric and he put it aside in his basket. Then a lady came in, and she needed a dress, and the fabric that she brought in was green as the leaves on the African trees. Let me see you do that. Green as the leaves on the African trees. And Salif made her that green dress, and he took a little piece of that fabric, and he put it in his basket. Then a family came in with a little girl who needed a party dress, and the fabric that they brought in was blue as the African sky. Let me see you do that. And he made the dress, and he put the piece away. And then a couple came in. They were ready to get married, and the fabric they brought in was white. It was like white, puffy clouds. Let me see you do that. White, puffy clouds. And he did that. And then a dad came in with his son who was going to school, and he needed a shirt for his school uniform. And the fabric that they brought in was yellow as the blazing African sun. Let me see you do that. And so Salif did that. Now, every time someone came in, he put a little piece of fabric in his basket. Well, one day he took one look at that fabric basket and he said, oh, I think I can make something beautiful out of this. So he sat down and he took his scissors and he went, cut, 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 cut. Let me see you do that. And when he finished that, he sat down to sew, but he did not use a needle and thread. He did not even use an electric sewing machine. He had a sewing machine with a platform on the bottom. He put his two feet on that platform, and they went up and down, and he went sew, sew. Let me see, do that. Sew, sew. Well, now, although there were opportunities to learn new things in this part of the story, The element which is most prominent here is entertainment. This aspect of storytelling is the most fun because it provides a respite from stress, troubles, and tensions and allows for vicarious experiences without any suffering. Many Anansi the Spider stories and Uncle Remus' Br'er Rabbit tales entertain us by appealing to our inner child, allowing us to just have fun. Many of these tales help us to see diversity of expression and experience the emotions of joy, peace, wonderment, while sometimes having a good laugh. Now, I know you want to know what happens next in the story, so I will get on with Salif the tailor. So, well, he cut and he sewed, and he made himself an outfit called a grand buba. Will you say that? And as soon as he stepped out of his tailor shop, his friends took one look at him, and they said, C'est magnifique. Let me see you do that. C'est magnifique. Which means it's magnificent in French, because in Senegal, they do speak French, in addition to Wolof and Fula, and about five or six other indigenous ang- languages. So, the outfit was worn everywhere. And then it got tattered and torn. And Salif thought he'd have to throw it out. But no, he loved the colors. Remember the colors? Here we go. Brown as the African soil. Green as the leaves on the African trees. Blue as the African sky. With white, puffy clouds. And yellow as the blazing African sun. You all are very good. (laughs) And so... He took out his scissors and he did cut, 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 cut. And when he'd finished the cutting, he did the so, so. And when he was done, he had a little shirt. That shirt's called a dashiki. Will you say dashiki? Dashiki. And he wore that everywhere and it wore out and his friends looked at him and they said, say, yes. And then... He said, well, it got tattered and torn. He threw it away. He went through all that process again, and he ended up with a little hat called a kufi. Will you say kufi? And that kufi was beautiful. He took a step out. His friend said, (laughs) And when he was done, it was all tattered and torn, and he said, I'm going to have to throw it out. So he went one more time with all the colors, and he did all the cutting, and he did all the sewing, And when he was done, he had a little story. The one that we have just told together. (laughs) (laughs) Now, even with this shortened version of the story, I hope you learned a little bit of French. Got the idea that repetition is the key to learning. That your imaginative mind can evoke images of places you've never been. And we realized that materials and ideas can be reused. The entrepreneurial spirit can be developed. Cultural information can be communicated. And you can even be a part of the storytelling. Audiences from preschoolers to senior citizens love the entertaining aspects of this story. And I've had many great conversations about it. Even though the stories I tell are based in African and African-American culture, that doesn't mean they lack broad appeal. Many stories can be adapted to suit any interest. Maybe it's hip-hop, Shakespeare, Tyler Perry, jazz, country western, opera. It may take a little doing, but almost all tastes can be accommodated. But a story that makes you feel as if you can do anything that you have the ability to reach and surpass your goals, or that you have the wisdom of the ancestors pushing you forward with love is perhaps the most powerful tool of storytelling. Stories which empower, teach lessons that transform and transcend generations and gender. These are the stories that storytellers hope are repeated most often, the ones that stick in the memory and are called upon just when needed. The story I know as Fly Eagle Fly is just such a tale. It is another one of my favorites and fits the empowering bill perfectly. When my storytelling colleague Teju tells this story, I laugh so hard it brings tears to my eyes. If you've heard Notando Zulu tell it, you were lifted right out of your seat. Oba William King brings the spirit of ancient Africa to his interpretation. However, each teller is relating the story of an eagle who spent some time thinking it was a chicken and how eventually its full potential was realized. As we realize our potential, we become better people and we see ourselves with the ability to make the world a better place. Using the tools of storytelling to make the world a better place allows us to uplift as we are uplifted. Then we begin to see connections within family, community, and the global village. So what can you do to put storytelling in your life and the lives of others? Well, you can collect and tell family stories. Talk with old folks. Write down their stories or capture them on video and audio because after our loved ones are gone, you can tell and retell the stories so the wisdom of their lives is used and not forgotten. Read and tell stories related to your own and other cultures. There are many books. Get a bunch of them. Keep looking until you find those you really like then learn the stories and tell them to family and friends. Volunteer at schools and nursing homes and shelters and jails and daycare centers and community gatherings and tell the stories you like. People will listen. Create your own stories and then tell them every chance you get. Storytelling has a tremendous power and ability to educate, entertain, and empower. I have learned to love doing it, and you will too. So in a small village in Ethiopia, a young and very poor boy got a job watching the cattle of a very rich man. This man was also vain and very boastful, and he embellished every story he told about his wealth, his accomplishments as a hunter, and his ability to survive in the coldest of mountain conditions. One day, when the rich man was being especially boastful, he promised a bag of gold and a small herd of cattle to anyone who could survive one whole night on the cold mountain with only a small blanket. The poor young boy accepted the challenge and that evening set out for the mountain with only a small blanket. The rich man thought surely the boy would return during the night or not return at all because of his death due to the cold. Early the next morning, the shivering and tired boy walked through the lifting fog to claim his prize. Well, the rich man was surprised and asked how the boy was able to survive the whole night in the cold with only one small blanket. The boy explained that during the darkest part of the night, he squinted his eyes and could just barely see the orange glow of a shepherd's fire on a mountain across the valley. He kept his eyes on it and dreamed of being warm. Well, the rich man was angry and said the boy could not have the gold or the cattle because looking at a fire on the mountain is the same as building a fire, and now you're out of a job and you must leave my employ tomorrow. The boy sadly went to bed. And the rich man ordered the servants to prepare a feast for himself and his guest. They did as they were told, and many tasty dishes were prepared. The smell wafted throughout the house, and the rich man's stomach began to rumble in anticipation. He ordered his musicians to play their instruments, and they took them up, but did not touch the strings, so no sound was heard. After a great while, a servant came forward and said, Master, I hope you have enjoyed the fine food and the beautiful music. The rich man bellowed, We have had nothing to eat and have heard no music. The servant answered, But master, you smelled the food all evening. You surely imagined the sounds of your favorite music. Was that not enough? Enough? growled the rich man in anger. What kind of person thinks that the smell of food can fill a man's stomach, and the dream of music can make sounds in his ears? And the servant respectfully answered, the same kind of person who believes that looking at a fire across a mountain can keep a small boy warm. Oh, that rich man was not pleased But the next morning, he did indeed give the poor boy a sack of gold and a small herd of cattle. The boy tended his own cows and grew to become a kind and generous rich man himself. This last story, as with the first, teaches a great lesson. An imaginative mind can overcome many obstacles. Storytelling is the key to developing an imaginative mind. It is a skill we can all learn and use.
2: I'm not one that typically geeks out on philosophers. I tend to like things to be really practical, relevant, tools that I can use in my everyday life, right? but I have done my fair share of geeking out on the philosopher John Dewey. Um, now, he's not Dewey of the Dewey Decimal System, which is probably the first thing that comes to everyone's mind. But he is an education philosopher who, um, about the same time that my grandma came to life, he was um, talking a lot about education and um, the need for experience in our in our educational systems. Um, he wrote the books, Democracy and Education, Experience in Education, and also, um, we will just go without, um, and also My Pedagogic Creed, really meaningful pieces. Um, one of the things that he said many those many years ago was that education is not preparation for life, education is life itself. Um, and i believe that wholeheartedly and i wanted to update it a little and luckily someone who's relevant today Carrie Dennison Kunin who is the director of Ignite After School which is Minnesota's statewide after school network said in my facebook news feed that learning takes place in takes place all the time in many settings and that it's the layering and interaction of all of those experiences that make us who we are. So before I talk a whole lot more about experiential learning and why it's so important, I wanted to make sure that I told you a little bit more about myself and why I'm standing before you today. So I grew up in rural Minnesota in a really small town, no stoplights a very small town with corn cobs real close by. Um, And when I was 16 years old, I got a postcard in the mail that said, come and have some pizza and come talk about the needs of young people in our community. So of course the pizza got me, um, but I was also really interested in what kind of conversation they were going to be having. And when I got there, I found out that there had been an offer from an elderly man in the community to a group of adults and young people who are doing some service in the community. He said, I've got this building. It's on Main Street. Nothing's happening in it. If you become a nonprofit, so I can donate it to you tax-free, will you do that? And so... That for me was the hook that I needed to say, yeah, I wanna be involved. So I got involved as a member of the board of directors at 16 and then at 17, um, the adults on the board asked me to be the vice president of the board. I responded with this look are you kidding? What <laughs> could I possibly do as a 17-year-old on the vice, as a vice president of this board? I don't know anything about that role. See, I had bought into this idea that because of my age, I didn't know anything. Luckily, they persisted and I finally accepted. And that experience really showed me the kind of adult that I wanted to be in the life of young people from that point forward. I wanted to be an adult who saw the worth and value of a young person as they are today, standing in front of me, rather than simply who they might be someday. Um, The, okay, lost my spot. Um, That experience also ignited a fuel for me to create my own youth center someday. Just a spark in the dark, but it was there. So I went off, you know, I graduated from high school, yay. I went off to college and did all of the classes and all the prep work so that I could walk the path of a professional youth worker. I hoped that at the end of my studies, I had the resume that would get me my first job, and luckily it did. (laughs) I don't know if I actually had the experience and the qualifications, but through that first job at a group home working with young people, ages 10 to 18, I was really able to understand what the real work of being a youth worker was. The young people who were with me there all had many kinds of trauma that they had experienced in life and were really struggling in different ways to to grapple with the depths of those wounds. They taught me so much. They taught me what it meant to show up and to keep showing up even if they made it really hard. And at the end of the day, they really prepared me for what came next in my own life. On August 1st, 2007, I was driving home from that job when the 35W Bridge fell, and it sent me plunging into the Mississippi River. I was drowning, and I should have drowned. But the only explanation I have to why I'm here today is the magic of mermaids and a job left unfinished. By the time that I had reached the hospital, I knew that the reason that I was still here was that 16-year-old dream that had yet to be accomplished. So, I, you know, you you have a life and death experience and as cliché as it sounds, it really tells you what's meaningful in life and what you need to do. And so, I set out on a path towards healing and I embraced every avenue that that could that could happen. Um, I needed to heal physically from a broken back and also emotionally from some pretty significant PTSD. One of the tools that I found in that process was art. Um, I didn't consider myself an artist beforehand. I really just uh, was creative on the side sometimes but um, never really looked to to art in any meaningful way for my own um, self until that happened. But the, the story that I was able to tell to myself through my painting, the new perspectives that that painting process offered me, and the like, like it really truly just woke me up from my ghostly existence after um, many years of trying to grapple with that hard, heart wound. So that was really the connection that I needed to solidify my someday dream. I recognized how privileged I was to be able to take an art class first of all and then after really learning how important that was for me to be able to walk into an art store, gather all the supplies that I needed and then walk home and set up my own studio. That is something that not everyone can do and I knew that that youth center that had always been a part of my soul Um, needed to be a space that created access for the arts for all young people in Minneapolis. So, Courageous Hearts is now in existence. Um, it's been alive and well for about a year and a half now. And, um, we are a space for all young people throughout Minneapolis to come and create. We have four cornerstones to the work that we do. First, there's the art and as was kind of alluded to in the introduction, we really believe that every single person in this room and in this world is an artist at heart and that there's things that happen along the way that kind of stomp down that creative spirit and we want to be the space that opens that up again for young people. In addition, we implement restorative practices. So we try to utilize the circle process as a way for young people to have their voice equal and on par with adults so that we can come together as a community to solve problems and to repair harms. Beyond what we do, there's who we are, the other two pieces of our um, philosophy. And the first is youth-driven. So as you can imagine, that 16-year-old person that I once was, who had their voice honored and heard in such a powerful way, wanted to make sure that that was in place from the very beginning of HEARTS. We have a youth advisory board who has been involved with with me and co-creating the space since the very beginning. And they do fantastic things, everything from program development and deciding what kinds of classes we're going to offer and how, to evaluating the programming and deciding what kind of policies need to be in place for various things. In addition, we're also trauma-informed. Clearly trauma has been a big impact in my life, but through that process it's woken me up to the trauma that's pervasive in all of our lives. because we're trauma-informed, we aren't looking to serve a certain kind of student with a certain kind of experience. We really recognize that every single person that comes into our space could have some kind of wound that they're dealing with in some kind of way, and that it's our responsibility to create a safe, safe and nurturing space for them to do whatever they need to repair that harm. So one of our youth advisor, advisory board members said about hearts the best, and I think um, She really captured it when she said that um, Hearts isn't a place that tells you how to paint a watercolor tree. It's a place that makes watercolors available so that you can paint whatever you want. So that's a little bit about what I do and where I've been and where I'm going, maybe. Part of the reason that I'm here today is to share a little bit about the role of er- experiential learning in young people's lives and how we do and or don't honor that in our current education system. I believe I'm a kind of a walking example of the ways that you can integrate the school life with the out-of-school life into a really meaningful life path. And I, I get concerned sometimes that the current system that we've created doesn't really honor all of the places and all of the ways that young people learn. So from my perspective, we've created a system that, create, that treats knowledge like a commodity. There's haves, and those haves might be the teachers, often the teachers, but also might be students of privilege. And there's also have-nots. And those are, you know, often just young people in general, have not, right? They don't have the information. But then it's also students who have lacked the opportunities in the same way that other students have. In doing so, in creating the system of haves and have-nots, we're denying the experiential wisdom that's inherent in all of us just because we are alive. So if we have a system that has knowledge as a commodity, then students really are the consumers. So I have a tale of two consumers to share on either side of the education economy. Now anytime you talk about either sides of anything, if you're anything into statistics, you know that's usually the extremes, but I'm gathering that if you're here today you recognize the ways that the system isn't working for all of our students and I would suggest that these extreme examples aren't as extreme as we'd like to admit. The first student that I'd like to talk about, or consumer, buys in too much. They're kind of like me and they believe that they're empty of knowledge, that they have to look outside of themselves to find out what they think and what they know. It shows up in the world like the statement, tell me what you want me to think which a young person said to me when I brought him, brought to the table a discussion that had no right answers and was simply an opening for dialogue. In addition, I've had a college professor who recently reflected to me that incoming freshmen are really struggling with open-ended questions and assignments that are, you know, asked what they know, asking them to share what they know. So these are the successes. These are the students who have made it through the steps that it takes to say that we're, you're good, right? Mm -hmm. On the other side of the economy are the students who don't buy in enough. Shonda Smith Baker from Pillsbury United Communities was recently on Minnesota Public Radio and she suggested that the dropout rate was a kind of protest and I wholeheartedly agree. Too many of our students aren't buying into this system of haves and have-nots. One example of such a student is one of the young people who works with me on my Youth Advisory Board. He's actually the co-chair of the Youth Advisory Board and the co-chair of my Board of Directors. And according to his school records, the only kind of official, formal, like, capturing of his knowledge he doesn't know much, but that's not true at all. In fact, he knows more than me in a lot of ways. Um, one of the first when one of the first conversations that I ever had with him, he asked me what grants I had applied to and whether I had looked into X, Y, and Z foundation. So <laughs> that's just an example of the many things that this young person knows. He's changing the world right now, but the only Measurement of his success is in my word. It's all, <laughs> all there is to it. Um, he thinks critically about our organization from beginning to end and everything in between. He's involved in the conversations about policy and the implications of the policies that we're creating, all the way down to where are we gonna put the new supplies that got donated. And um, he makes a difference in our lives every single day. You know, don't get me wrong, he still has things to learn, right? But so do I, so do you, right? We all have things to learn. So I'm faced with a pretty significant dilemma. As a caring adult, how do I support and honor the wisdom that he walks in the world with every day, and reconcile the fact that our ways as a society of measuring and validating that learning could limit his options? Do I encourage him to buy in just enough to jump through the hoops so that our system says he knows things? Or do I advocate within the system so that there are opportunities for him and for students like him to earn credit for the learning that they're already doing? Our system isn't working. We know this. Knowledge isn't a commodity. It's an inherent right. If we continue to treat knowledge as a commodity though, then we need to start thinking about thinking like the business sector and consider it that the customer is always right. I don't believe that it's the student's obligation to jump through our hoops, but I think it's our obligation to adjust the hoops to their path. And right now, the way that things are set up, there isn't really even a customer service center to take young people's calls, and that's a problem. So, if any of the things that I've shared so far tonight, whether it was John Dewey's quote, Carrie's quote, or something that I said, um, I have a call to action for you. I I hope that you can use your voice to lift up the role of -of out-of-school time learning as a legitimate and valid place where learning happens. Youth across the city, the state, the nation, and beyond, are doing amazing things during out of school time hours. Whether they're learning how to run an organization, like they do at Courageous Hearts, or they're learning how to create a business, um, or make a video, a marketing video, or anything in between, um, those experiences are worthy of a second look from the education system. I think that we need bold and decisive leadership so that our formal and informal places of learning can work together to honor the ways that young people are doing really important and valuable things in our community. And the, cur- the currency that they work with, most of all, is credit. So we need to find ways to really honor and, and speak to all of those learning pieces in all those ways. So, I could share about 100 different examples of the awesome things happening in out-of-school time. But I thought I would, since we're with Achieve Minneapolis tonight, I thought I would share about the Step Up program. Which, if you're not familiar, Step Up is a fantastic employment readiness internship program for high school students. That mostly takes place during the summer, but it's, I know, starting to have a little bit of a year-round influence. But young people are partnered up with real professional jobs, like really amazing jobs at places like U.S. Bank and Wells Fargo and any number of the hospitals in town to do things that you wouldn't otherwise be able to do as an under-18 person. You can barely get a job at a TJ Maxx if you're (laughs) under 18. I don't think you even can. Um, So this is a really important program that has so much opportunity embedded within it. We have this infrastructure of business people who are willing and able to support young people in really, really important ways. Um, And my one concern is that I've seen far too many young people have to choose between going to summer school to earn credit and getting their summer job to earn a paycheck. And I don't think that that's a choice that any young person should ever have to make. And I think that it's our responsibility as adults to figure out how to make that happen. Internships at a college level earn credit all the times. And if you're lucky, you get paid on top of it. But with this program, the kids get paid no matter what. Our business community has stepped up to the plate on that front. And so my challenge for Achieve in the city is to work with Minneapolis Public Schools in whatever way to make that happen. And as an employer this last summer, I will be happy to um, evaluate the students in whatever way needed so that they are able to earn credits and earn a paycheck. It's possible there's reasons that that hasn't happened yet, or any of these things haven't happened yet. Um, usually there are. Usually there's lots and lots of things on the adult side, that the, the hoops that we have to jump through as well. But I think as a, as a advocate for young people, I think it's really important that we as adults are really questioning why the rules that govern an ineffective system are any more effective. I think we have a responsibility to push back on unnecessary, unnecessary hurdles and to question why not rather than answer with because. I think we will do right by young people when we su- support them as learners by honoring the teachers they already are so they can see the wisdom that they already hold. Thank you. <laughs>
0: Ed Talks is presented by Achieve Minneapolis and the Citizens League in partnership with young education professionals Twin Cities and Pollen. Thanks to our generous sponsors, the Bush Foundation and the Vern C. Johnson Family Foundation. For more information on Ed Talks or to watch Ed Talks videos, please visit AchieveMPLS.org edtalksmn